Hey, hi everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond Eight Figures. This is AJ, the journeyman entrepreneur with another Beyond Eight Figure episode for you. On the show, we talk with top entrepreneurs about the realities of building an eight-figure business, what success really means to them, and hear from them about some of their winning strategies and tactics. Tune in to each episode to learn how to grow your business beyond 10 million, and more importantly, create your own personal legacy. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode. Today, we have Samantha Kemp Sam, who's the co-founder and chief investment officer of Inmo on the show today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm really excited. I'm fascinated just because real estate has been sort of this very traditional approach to investment and seems very much that Inmo is taking a very aggressive, very interesting tech forward approach to disrupting the space. I would love to learn more, but before we do, before I geek out a little bit too much here, Sam, where are you on your own entrepreneurial journey now? The company started in 2017 from London Business School. Where are you on your journey? Oh, that's such a big question. I think feel like yes. it's been moving so fast. Don't really get to stop and really think about that very often. I mean, as a founder, as an entrepreneur, I feel like I'm constantly learning. I still feel like there's so many things I don't know. I feel like every day I'm trying to be a better leader, you know, as an entrepreneur, you know, we've had a decent amount of success and we've been very fortunate. I think I always find it quite strange when people go, oh, you guys have done so well and you're doing all of this and that, and isn't it amazing? And it is amazing. But I think as an entrepreneur, or as a founder, you're always just more. And there's always, you know, every problem that you solve, you then realize actually there's another 50 problems or challenges that you still now need to solve next. So, and I think this is pretty common across most entrepreneurs. You're never sitting still. You're never truly satisfied with what you've built and you're always hungry and eager to keep improving. And whether it's improving the business or improving yourself personally, trying to be that better leader for the business, it never really stops. You're evolving. Constantly, constantly evolving, constantly learning, stopping or still. What are you finding right now for your journey? Because we were chatting just about sort of how more aggressive you're becoming and growing with Immo Capital. What are you finding is most important for you to be learning? What are you diving into now? I mean, constantly, like I think I just meant like leadership skills constantly are having to be stretched. You know, the leadership skills that myself and my other co-founders had when we started up the business and there was just a handful of us are completely different to the skills required to not only lead an organization, but also win business for the organization when you're 160 people across Germany, Spain, UK and India and a few other countries. So the skills that we need to be developing as as leaders ourselves are, are constantly changing. I think also we're having to really start narrowing in on the parts of the business that we focus on and really making sure that we're playing to our strengths. You know, I'm the CIO, I'm chief investment officer, which means my background is real estate investments and private equity. So my real focus is very much on all things investment, all things about the investment product, the financial product that we're actually creating for for institutions and then very much going and selling that product and uh, winning mandates from institutional investors. So that's very much my focus. You know, a lot of the operational parts of the business. I have other co-founders and colleagues who are much better placed to be focusing on that. So 
as we grow and as the business grows, it's very much being as self-reflective as we can and really figuring out where do we play best? Where are we the strongest? And making sure that we're doing individually the best that we can do for the business. Yeah, so a lot of people talk and I used to joke, I used to wear all the hats. Now you've been taking off many of the secondary hats to focus on the investment as you go. But you said mentioned earlier, and I would love to kind of talk a little bit about how you're working on developing your leadership. Because I grew my business and I had a lot of difficulty when we approached eight figures because I was still running it like a $2 million company, not the almost $10 million company. And I had to learn after we fell and then rebuild. What are you doing now to grow your leadership skills? Like what's helping you the most? I think there's obviously a lot of stuff you can read and there's a lot of things that you can research yourself and try to take inspiration or whether it's listening to other podcasts with other founders or leaders or fantastic CEOs or execs. There's always a lot of inspiration and learnings to be gained from listening to other people's stories. I think the biggest thing is also just being incredibly self-reflect, like aiming to be as self-reflective as possible and constantly reflecting on things that have gone well, things that haven't, but most importantly, things that haven't gone well, how could I have approached those things differently? Really asking for feedback as much as possible from my team, which is often quite difficult. I think when you're leading a business, people aren't always as open to give truly transparent feedback that we desperately need and want. Yeah. Um, so it's really about trying to create that very safe and open culture and environments and to invite that feedback as much as possible. And even when you're not being given direct feedback, trying to read between the lines to find the feedback, even if people aren't giving it to you as directly as, you know, would necessarily like. And then also, you know, asking for advice from other people as well, whether it's peers, whether it's friends, whether it's family, whether it's, you know, I'm on some really fantastic WhatsApp groups with other entrepreneurs founders and I think reaching out and asking other people how they would approach problems is always really helpful and just even talking through challenges and I personally find I just even the talking through the process of the problem mm -hmm. you end up being able to solve the problem on your own often just but you just needed to be able to articulate it you needed to be able to talk it through with someone and then whether that's kind of you're doing that informally with friends or family or sort of peers in the industry also then where possible, if, if possible, having a coach as well. I always say a coach is pretty much like a professional therapist. <laughs> they are incredible at helping you realize and sort of tap into your true potential and be self-reflective and figure out how to start the next day as, as a better leader. Well, there's a lot of things you said that were very, very interesting and I think very powerful for an entrepreneur. But I love what you said about being able to share what you're facing, the problem that you're trying to solve with another entrepreneur, because I've noticed myself, I'll say it in my head, I'll be thinking about it, but the actual moment of articulating it to someone else and having to structure it so it actually yes. makes sense versus just all the random points <laughs> about a concept I need to do. In my head, I'm yep. like, oh, wait. Yeah, literally by the time I finish, I've already sort of not, yeah, and I still need more up, but it's like, okay, yes, I was just letting it be noisy. Now it is so much more structured. So I love that you go through that process because yes, it is so 
powerful, I find. I'm like, oh yeah, it's noise in my head. But the times I've had a good coach, it's been amazing for my business and for my own journey. But it's so hard sometimes to find the right type of coach for where you are. For you, what is the process you go about finding your coach or how you work without your coach? I mean, you can find a sort of professional coach. And then I find that there's also, I have plenty of other people in my life who I've sort of assembled around me who act as mm-hmm. coaches, but possibly in a more yes. formal, informal capacity. But in terms of, you know, finding the right coach, I think, like you said, it's very hard to find the right person. As with finding a friend, right? You're not going to bond or feel that you can fully trust or open up to just anyone you meet, right? You really have to feel that you connect with that person and you can build a relationship and a rapport and and trust them. Because like I said, they're essentially a professional therapist and you've really got to have that trust foundation to be able to open up and really dive deep into being very self-reflective and being very self-critical at times. So the way I've gone about it, I've interviewed or met with a bunch of different coaches and didn't choose the first person that I met and waited until I found someone who I did connect with. And then even then did one or two sort of trial sessions to start off with. You've also got to invest in spending some time and see whether you feel that their style as well is going to work for you. Because I think lots of different coaches have lots of different styles. I think there are a lot of coaches out there that have done these coaching qualifications. And I met a lot of them, unfortunately, and I just didn't really feel much value coming out of it. But then some people you meet, as soon as you start talking with them, you just feel like they get it. They get it, they understand. And I think, and different people have different approaches. Sometimes I've really benefited from people asking those very open-ended questions. And as you said, like I've then kind of gone down this route of having to structure and articulate my thoughts. And I've sort of come to those conclusions myself. And then there's other times when I've really benefited from someone where I'm just like, please just tell me the answer. (laughs) Tell me what I should do. I don't know what to do right now. Like I just need someone to share their experiences, you know? So I've often found like the best coaches as well of people who've been there and done it. They've got the war wounds. They completely understand. They're able to share some of their own experiences as well. Yeah. It's that balance of helping you figure it out yourself, but then also being able to step in and and give you really practical suggestions and advice of how to tackle challenges that you're facing. Yeah, that's 100% correct. It is very difficult. I had a great coach and I would constantly beg him for the cheat codes. <laughs> like, what are the cheat codes to do this? And he would just say, I don't know. How would you do it? And he would make me articulate. And they say, okay, that's interesting. I did it this way. And I was like, why couldn't you have said that first? So yeah, it is that kind of balance and play to pull and push and just sort of help you move forward. Well, I think that's really powerful, especially since you are having success with email capital, but still needing to grow to feel like it is the type of success you want. And I'd love to talk about that later. But what I was really fascinated was just the approach that email was doing so much more of a data tech focus approach than I see in a lot of other real estate trust funds, et cetera. How is that evolving now in the space, given all the fun AI and other technologies? Where is this going? How are you creating this unique space for email capital? Yeah. So I think the real estate sector is one of the most undisrupted categories so far. And there's reasons for it. It's a very offline industry still. It's bricks and mortar. It's everything from the home you live in, the 
infrastructure, the train stations, it's, you know, logistics, it's offices, it's shopping centers, like real estate is all around us. And so it's also the biggest asset class in the world and it touches every part of our lives. It is a really big, chunky category to be disrupted. But to me, that's also very exciting because it hasn't really been disrupted so far. PropTech is still relatively nascent, especially in Europe. The US is definitely much more advanced when it comes to prop tech, but there's still a significant way to go. In Europe, there are prop techs emerging and some, some good ones, but in general, it's still very, very nascent. And in the space that in particular that we're playing in, which is being today, which is very focused on being a tech-driven institutional investment management platform, particularly focused on the residential space. And it's a you know, just to give a bit of background, the rental sector is in desperate need of professionalization. Just in the UK, for example, 85% of the rental stock is owned by sort of mom and pop or unprofessional landlords. And, you know, that means that generally renters are not given a product or service that they deserve. And there is no other consumer facing market that is able to get away with charging consumers so much every single month for what is typically without too much for, yeah, yeah what is typically a terrible product and a terrible service and then on the other side we work with um the institutional investors the long-term investors such as pension funds who would love to invest into the residential sector because they really love long-term very stable income streams that residential does provide yeah. but they've historically not really been able to access this space as well because the granularity and the fragmentation of residential property and means that using traditional manual processes, it's completely inefficient to be able to invest in, into this space at, at scale. So we recognize that. We also then went about, you know, figuring out how can we remove those inefficiencies with technology. And we realized as well that we needed to build that technology across the whole value chain. And it's a very long value chain. It's everything from doing data analytics to identify the right markets, to then source the assets, to then acquire, retrofit, lease up, manage, portfolio manage, do the finance, the accounting, everything. It's a really, it's, a, it's the entire value chain is incredibly long and there was no one in the market really doing it well that we could just plug into and, you know, say, okay, we'll outsource that part of the value chain. So we've really had to build the entire value chain pretty much from scratch, which in hindsight, was an absolutely mental and mad <laughs> decision to do. But it's also been probably the best decision we've made because it is the only way to be able to tap into and unlock this asset class for institutional investors. And now that we are on the road to really cracking it, it means that, you know, because the barriers and the hurdles are so high, it means that we've got a very large moat. It's a very defensible business that we're, we're aiming to develop. It's not easy for incredibly hard for anyone to try and step into this space. And, you know, we have the benefit of a sort of first mover advantage in this very much this blue ocean space. And there are people starting to replicate and try to build similar businesses. But yeah, it's a very hard business. I mean, I genuinely welcome more competition into the space because I think it needs more people pushing the boundaries and championing it and starting to unlock other parts of the ecosystem for the benefit of everyone. But yeah, it's some big hurdles to be jumping over.
Yeah, I think it is really fascinating because I have seen a raft of companies trying to do this, but they seem to be more focused on individual cities. And having lived in London 20 plus years ago and gone through the craziness of trying to rent a flat, <laughs> is, I love London. London is one of my favorite cities in the world, if not my favorite, but uh, I will never rent a flat again in London. doesn't matter how, up, down, left, right, or center. But then also I've lived in Spain and that same experience of just the unprofessionalism, the the craziness, the rules changing, yeah, everything is on one hand so structured beyond by the Spanish bureaucracy, but yet the reality is it's so flowing, the experience where it's very uneven. I like this approach and I do think the scale you'll be able to achieve is going to be just amazing because yes, I'm seeing stuff where people are individual cities, not looking across a risk adjusted Oh, absolutely. And it's also about taking capital and from the institutional world, which very like from the conservative, very reputationally focused sort of long term capital providers like pension funds. And they deploy huge amounts in any one go. Like the most common question we get is how does this scale? How can we invest hundreds of millions into this product? Does this strategy go beyond just the markets you're, you're currently in? How fast can you deploy the capital and scale up? So, you know, the residential market is, is the largest asset class in the world. 98% of the residential asset class is this granular housing stock. And institutions, especially over the past 12 months with the current crisis, and, you know, there's a lot of headwinds affecting a lot of other markets and, and asset classes, but there's incredibly strong tailwinds behind the residential sector, which means that because it's a basic human needs, you're serving, you're, you're providing yeah. housing for people. There are so many strong tailwinds to this sector that have meant that the institutions have continued increasing their allocations to the residential space. And they're all struggling to figure out how to deploy at scale. You know, they're not yes. to just deploy 10 million here, 20 million here. They want to allocate 100 million, 200 million, 500 million, plus, plus, plus. And they're being forced to look beyond traditional real estate opportunities and start to think more creatively about how they can, can start deploying into residential in ways that currently don't exist. So the past 12 months have actually been incredible for us in terms of, you know, the silver lining of the crisis is has been, yeah. you know, we've actually got more institutional investors and demands coming to us than, than ever before. Yeah, in a sense, because you have this investment, the rise in interest rates almost is going to benefit you because our smaller buyers who are getting pricing is becoming, or cost of capital is becoming more expensive for the traditional buyer going out. So you can kind of stay in this, I would take it, you can stay more fluid here in the space. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the interest rates have been really, obviously it's meant that fewer people have been able to get mortgages. Yeah. Unfortunately, it means that there's even more rental demands because more people are not buying as much um, for their own occupation and they're, they're, they're staying in rental accommodation. There's a chronic lack of supply coming through on the residential yes. side, even pre-crisis. 
the deficit between, you know, the amount of uh, supply coming through versus the amount of demand has been huge for years and years. Like every year when we're not building enough housing and that's gotten worse over the past 12 months with both construction cost inflation and uh, with interest rates going up. It's just meant that construction projects, the, the numbers on those projects just don't stack up. They, they struggle to stack up pre-crisis and they're, they're, they're almost impossible to stack up um, at the moment. So there was already a lack of supply, new supply coming through, and that's just gotten even worse over the past um, 12 months. So, you know, the pressure on existing supply in the market is huge. And then there's also a lot of other factors that make it incredibly attractive for institutions to be investing into the existing residential space. And part of it is around, um, you know, the environmental benefits of investing into existing housing stock and upgrading and retrofitting and reducing the carbon emissions of, of these homes. Yeah. In the UK, for example, 30% of the UK's carbon emissions comes from housing. Um, in the UK, we've got some of the oldest housing stock in Europe that is desperately in need of being retrofitted and insulated to upgrade its its EPCs. And, um, you know, so there's a massive environmental impact that can be gained. And obviously, when a lot of institutions, they've got they've got quite significant ESG related objectives. This is also a really fantastic way for them to be meeting them from an environmental perspective. And then from a social perspective, as we mentioned already, it's it's outrageous that consumers are not given a better quality housing product or, you know, customer service. In the UK, the Department of Leveling Up Communities and Housing, they did a white paper last year that said 25% uh, of our private rented stock in the UK is substandard and 12% is what they would class as a category one hazard, which means it's not even fit for human habitation. <laughs> it's And it's... it's Yes. It's shocking that this exists, you know, and then you have really tragic stories like before Christmas, don't know if you heard, there was a really, really sad story of there was a two-year-old boy who died because of mold in his, in his rental. Yes. And that is just unacceptable. And it's absolutely shameful that that exists. So, you know, bringing institutional capital into this space to raise living standards in existing communities is also incredibly impactful from a social perspective. So, yeah, so, you know, we're aiming to very much create this investment financial product for institutions, but there's huge benefits from an environmental and a social consumer perspective. So it feels really this should be a win-win on many sides for many people. Well, I agree. I, I just know the lack of quality in housing in multiple layers economically, it's so beyond frustrating. You talked about the idea that the success you were having just didn't feel the way you thought. But like when you look forward, how are you going to define what your success is going to become? And then how are you going to actually make sure that you are enjoying that and recognizing your own success as you move forward? Yeah. So I think on, on from a business perspective, business success is... I mean, I think there's obviously very tangible milestones in a big new client mandate. You, um, we deploy X amount of capital or actually we did some NPS scoring across all of our residents. And I think our NPS score was higher than even Apple or Microsoft. And for, for the real estate industry, I think the average yeah. real estate industry has a minus NPS score. <laughs> We're incredibly proud. Way down. You know, so for us, that was, you know, that was also a moment of success where we're, we're like, we're doing something right. We're delivering a great 
and it goes beyond just a rental experience for the consumer. It's like I said, it's a basic human need that you're serving. So you really feel like you're delivering something to people's lives. And that's sort of being validated by these sorts of really high NPS scores, which is great. Whether it's we do a fundraise and, you know, last year we were very fortunate. We raised Europe's largest Series B prop tech round. So, you know, that for a moment <laughs> felt like a success. And then we thought, oh my God, all the things we've got to... <laughs> More work. <laughs> So, you know, so there's, there's lots of little successes. I think I personally, I don't dwell on them for too long because I know that there's, there's still bigger challenges to solve, but I also take a lot of motivation from seeing us grow the business and doing right by you know, not just our residents or our investors, but also really importantly, our own people, our own employees, yeah. making sure that we're doing our best to create a business that is a place that they are happy to go to every single day and obviously we don't always get it right but we always strive to do our very best for our employees so when i don't know you hear people they've got a new mortgage or things like that or you, you see that they're very proud telling people or their friends or their family about you know working at emo or the successes that they feel they're having at work and you see the team celebrating their successes you know that definitely feels like success when you get to see that as well and it's an honor it's an honor and it's very humbling to be able to help deliver that for people well no i think it is a great experience to be able to create something that you are getting your own financial benefit from but then also seeing their lives be better that is really impressive how can someone that is interested in learning more about what you're doing with email and your own entrepreneurial journey. How can they find you besides being active on LinkedIn? What's a good way for them to learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, always happy for people to reach out to us and if I'm the right person for them to speak to, I'm always really happy to direct them to someone else in the business who can help them learn more about, I don't know, whether it's on the investment side or the operations side or the people side or the tech side or the marketing side, whichever yeah. it is, you know. I think we've got really fantastic people at IMO who are always willing to help and chat and talk to others outside of IMO. So people can either reach out directly via LinkedIn or from an investment perspective or from a real estate perspective, because that has been a lot of our focus um, yeah. for the business, some um, capital raising from institutions. We do have a lot out of a lot of content out there, whether it's through, um, you know, white papers or articles or podcasts or panels um, yes. that we're on, but uh, yeah, so people can sort of tap into those if they want as well. Great. We'll make sure we include those in the show notes and in the email and the social media when we start talking about this episode. Sam, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really appreciate you joining us today. I hope you have a wonderful evening. Thank so you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Please, if you enjoyed our show today, send it to someone who you think could learn something from this. And as always, I can't wait to come back and have another amazing entrepreneur for you to learn from. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of Beyond Eight Figures is over, but your journey as an entrepreneur continues. So if we can help you with anything, please just let us know. And if you like this episode, please share it with someone who might learn from it. Until next time, keep growing and find the joy in your journey. This is AJ and I'll be talking to you soon. Bye-bye.